0: Bibles. Let's go to the Old Testament again, to the book of Esther. The book of Esther, chapter 8. We've come now to chapter 8 in the book of Esther. I'm going to read the chapter. This is about reversing destruction, reversing destruction. Esther chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, he gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king and she said, If it please the king and if I have found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. Or How can I bear to see the calamity that is coming upon my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold... I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language." And he wrote it in the name of King Ahasuerus, and he sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and to defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods." on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews that fallen on them. May God bless to us the reading of His sacred and His holy word. Now, you know, these remaining chapters, chapters 8, 9, 10, uh, may seem to be uh, a little bit of a letdown since the The whole thrust of the book of Esther had raised our expectations about Haman the Agagite. I mean, what's going to happen to Haman? How is Haman going to be defeated? And so on and so forth. So since Haman now, the enemy of the Jews, has been hanged on the gallows that he himself had prepared for Mordecai, it seems a little bit of a letdown now when we come to the remaining chapters. What can remain for us as we look at this? So from chapter 1 through chapter 7, the book of Esther has built up this solid expectation about something happening to Haman. And we've gone through all the chapters exploring the development by the author of Esther about how he achieves his purpose in writing uh, of bringing us to that, that culmination or to that point where Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, the enemy of Mordecai, the enemy of Esther, finally gets his due. And is hanged on the gallows. And so we may feel as we come to these remaining chapters, well, what more can there be for us? We have discovered and we have learned the great doctrine of the providence of God, which simply is the declaration that that not only, of course, God has created all things, but that He maintains and rules and governs everything that He has made. And included within that governing and that sustaining and that maintaining is your life and is my life. That all the events of our lives are to be found within the providential gracious dealings and works of a sovereign God. Of God himself who controls all events in our lives, bringing us sometimes down to despair and then at other times giving us great joy even as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God that we give our lives to, and it is God that we live our lives unto. And these are the themes that we discover when we unfold the great doctrine of the providence of God, God's providential care for His people, always for their good, always for the glory of God. And so as we have worked ourselves through the chapters 1 through 7, we have explored some of these great themes that we find in the book of Esther about The providence of God. It's good to remind ourselves, I think, that nowhere in the book of Esther is the name of God mentioned at all. And yet, we cannot come away from reading what we read in the book of Esther, since we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, without seeing the hand of God everywhere. From the very beginning in the rule and the life of a pagan Persian king, King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, to the life of Esther and the life of Mordecai. And so we confess and we believe that even though God is not mentioned, yet God is everywhere present, isn't he? We see his hand, we see his work, we see his dealing.
1: Well, now that Haman has
0: died, we might raise and ask the question, well, what now? What more can the writer of the book of Esther bring to our attention that would be of help to us? that would be of benefit to us, and uh, I dare say we might feel, because I felt this a little bit, a bit of a letdown as you come to this chapter after reading about the downfall. What can be profitable? What can be beneficial? What can be of good for us? One of the things that we believe is that all of this Bible, all of Scripture, which is a revelation from God, is for our profit. I mean, isn't that what the the derivative of the inspiration of Scripture is? That since all Scripture is inspired of God, it is therefore, as a result of that, profitable for teaching, reproving, correcting, teaching us in righteousness or training us, so that the man or the woman of God might be godly, might be holy, and live their lives. And so we discover that the fruit of the inspired Word of God, which is beneficial to all of us, is that godliness... Is a very, very profitable thing. In fact, holiness is that very characteristic that God requires be holy even as I am holy. Godliness, as a good thing, does two things for us. The Apostle Paul tells us that because Scripture is inspired and is profitable and beneficial and good, and godliness is the fruit of it, that therefore godliness holds promise in this life and also promise. In the life that is to come and I cannot think of any two more beneficial or good things for me to think about than what is beneficial what is good for me in this life and what is good for me for the life to come and it comes down to this one practical word godliness and so I must live and you must live a life that is godly if that's true then when you backtrack the arguments from that you come back to Scripture because it's derived from Scripture And when you go back to Scripture, we discover then that we would have to confess and we would have to say that all Scripture is absolutely necessary and is absolutely vital for me to know Christ. Not only that, but to live the kind of life that God expects. Because the fruit of it is if godliness is so crucial and linked to God's word, then without godliness there can be no benefit and there can be no uh, profit and only the judgment of God of God. So Scripture, God's Word is essential, isn't it? It's vital, so important. God has given us His Word that we might learn from it, that we might benefit from it, profit from it, and therefore to not read the Bible, to not have the Bible, to not care about the Bible is to put yourself in the place where you do not benefit and you do not profit at all because this Bible, this Word, is the Word from the Living God and the only Word from God Himself from Genesis to Revelation. and There is no other revelation that brings to us the sight of Christ. Yes, God has created all things that is a general revelation but it will not give you the light and the knowledge, saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For that you need special revelation which is the revelation that we have from God's Word. And therefore when we read such passages in the Old Testament which which seem so far away that are historical, that are narrative in their layout and their context, we might come to the conclusion, well, that's just a story, and maybe what we're supposed to do is get the good out of the story and and try and figure out some things that are of benefit to us. Instead of realizing that every word in all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and therefore every word, let alone every verse, is profitable for us and beneficial to us, as a Christian. And so in view of this, the reading of the Old Testament Scriptures, which is the Word of God, along with the New Testament, as a revelation from God, is something that is of great benefit to us. Great privilege to read God's Word, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. It's a direct revelation from God. And it must govern our hearts and govern our lives. I must rule my life, live my life in accordance with the Word of God. So reading the Bible... For profit, for my good, for your good, for usefulness, is a derived benefit from what Scripture actually is. I must never forget that. It doesn't matter where I'm reading, what I'm studying, that the derived benefit from the revelation that God gives me that I read is always for my good, for my profit, and for our good and profit. Uh, That's why we must learn to love the Word, right? We must learn to read the Word. We must spend time in the Word. Now, in studying Esther, when you read some of the commentators, you come across some very strange ideas, simply because I think God is not mentioned. And so they, they, they tried to come up with some of the commentators about well, what is this book all about. One Old Testament introduction says that the purpose of the book of Esther is to account for the origin of the Jewish Feast of Purim. Well, we haven't even got to the Feast of Purim yet. That's chapter 9. If that's the purpose of the book of Esther, it seems to me that the the commentator has kind of missed a lot of material, right? Before the celebration or the institution of this Feast of Purim in chapter 9. Verse 18 through chapter 10, verse 3. Surely it would be better to say, just based on a simple reading of the book of Esther, that this is the sovereign working of God in a multiplicity of events and situations that all aim at delivering the Jews from destruction. By the hand of God. Not necessarily by the hand of Mordecai or by the hand of Esther, but we read it, we see it is by the hand of the living God. It's God who delivers His people. Purim, by the way, which we discover in chapter 9, is only a byproduct or a consequence, a subsidiary consequence, when compared with the rest of what we read in the book of Esther, let alone, by the way, the rest of what you read in the Bible, because this is the only book where Purim is mentioned, and only in a few verses in chapter 9. As with all of Scripture, we can have two views of God's Bible, The first view is that you can view it as God-centered, or the second view is you view it as man-centered. And in order to do away, many, with God's authority and God's power, in His Word, communicated to us, they will say that the authority that we find in Scripture is from man, not from God. This is the product of man who has come up with these things so that we might learn some good things or whatever it might be. Well, no, there are great consequences if you say it is man-centered rather than God-centered. Instead, we accept completely on pain of our lives that all of of Scripture is from the hand of God Himself, from the mouth of God. God breathed. This is the Word of God, so we accept that and we reject any idea of man-made Scripture at all. We know that to be true because God's Word tells us that it did not come from man, but it comes from God Himself. So all of Scripture is designed to exalt God, to lift God up, to praise God, that we might rejoice in God, that we might trust in the Lord Himself. Even the book of Esther, which is in the canon of Scripture, the Old Testament's canon, and therefore we confess and acknowledge that it is Scripture itself. If you want to be safe in your Christian understanding of the Word of God, then you must start with Scripture, and you must end with Scripture. That unfolds for us and unpacks for us the great idea that Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. Not me, not you, not my ideas, not your ideas, not your schemes, not your plans. No, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Scripture always perfectly interprets Scripture. And so we must always start with the Bible and end with the Bible and let the Bible say what the Bible says and believe what the Bible says rather than seek to debate and devour and uh, tear down what God says. Now I fully recognize (laughs) that there are some parts in the Bible that are more difficult than others. I think every Christian sooner or later discovers that, right? There are a lot of parts in the Bible that take time to work out and to think about, but if the whole truth is derived only from the God who is truth, then it is possible to know the truth and to know the truth as we find it, but you can only do that (coughs) when you let the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. If your authority is the Word of God, then you cannot go wrong. But if your authority is man then I can guarantee you will go wrong when it comes to the reading of the Bible at every point. And so we must seek to always seek to know what the truth is of God's word. What does the Bible do? I mean, for instance, what does the the book of Esther reveal about God to us, even though it doesn't say or give us the name of God? Surely it is an unfolding to us like all of Scripture of the mind of God, and the purpose of God, and the will of God. And we must, if that is true, humble our minds and put our minds under the authority of scripture and submit our minds and our hearts to such an exclusive authority and this only authority. When we do that, our appreciation, our love, our gratitude for God increases and for his word grows and the byproduct of an appreciation for the word of God is that your faith is nourished, your faith is strengthened, and what more... Do we need in the days in which we live than to have our faith strengthened and to rejoice in what God has said to us? And you can only get that because God has said it to us in his word. So when I read the book of Esther, I discover that there are three ideas or a threefold idea. The first is this, that God is always working behind the scenes. If God is always working behind the scenes in the book of Esther, God is always working behind the scenes in every other book and in my life. Always working behind the scenes. That's number one. Number two, God's plan, God's purpose can never be thwarted by anybody. It's absolutely impossible. It cannot overthrow the mind, the purpose of God. We know that. And so God's purpose in the book of Esther is not overthrown by the schemes of Haman, But no, God is using Haman to work out his purpose and his schemes. Thirdly, the schemes of man, the plans of our hearts, are doomed when we set them against God. That's just given, right? You set yourself against God, you shall find that God will bring you down. So Esther remarkably unfolds for us a wide array of humanity. For instance, in chapter 1 you're introduced to Queen Vashti, the Persian queen. Defiant, isn't she? When Xerxes says, come, come and parade yourself here among all my nobles, she refuses, she's defiant. We see what kind of queen she was. When you look at King Xerxes or King Ahasuerus, this pagan king who ruled 450 years before the time of our Lord Jesus Christ. Over 127 provinces from Ethiopia to India. This massive empire. You look at this king, Xerxes, and you discover that he is despotic. Like all the kings, ancient kings. Thinking only of himself. Concerned only with his stature, with who he is. And then you come down to that Haman, the Agagite, who is described in the book of Esther as the enemy of the Jews and what can we say about Haman he is diabolical he is the ancient Hitler worse than Hitler but there he is in the book of Esther and then we turn our eyes and our minds to Queen Esther and what a different woman she would appear to be destined it would appear to achieve the deliverance of her people which we found in chapter 7 and then we come to Mordecai who so often is found behind the scenes And there's a man who's deserving of honor, who received no honor the first time when he saved the life of King Xerxes. But now has come to receive the honors due him. And the writer of the book of Esther has woven together all of these human strands, lives, human lives together uh, so long ago. And to cause us to learn, I think, that whenever we read history, whatever form we read history, we should see history as God's story as God's providential dealings in humanity. It doesn't matter what history you read that is behind us. It is always God's history because God is the only one controlling history and in charge of history. And so it's to cause us to always seek God, and therefore we turn to his word to explain the world around us, to explain history to us, to explain the secular world, the cultural world we find ourselves in, the world that Esther Mordecai, as Jews, found themselves in in a pagan kingdom. Now, up to chapter 7, the whole focus has been on Haman's plan, right? To destroy the Jews. But now, chapter 8 and chapter 9, we have Esther's plan to deliver the Jews. So it's a total reversal, right? From what Haman intended and what Esther intends. And just because Haman is gone does not mean that the law that he put in place has gone. And this is an important part, right? This goes back to chapter 3, verses 13 and 15, when Haman had the edict written because the King Ahasuerus gave him the signet ring. And you remember how Haman couched it, there are people in your kingdom who don't even think about you, they don't care about you, Xerxes, and we should take them out. Didn't name them as Jews, He just said, there's a people out there and they're a real problem to your kingdom. They don't follow your rules. They don't listen to you. And Xerxes, of course, would be really angry with that and said, sure, here's the ring. Stamp the decree. And the decree is the order and the law of the Persians. So the plan to destroy all the Jews, of course, as you remember, was scheduled for just one day. Notice it's a schedule throughout 127 provinces on one single day to destroy every single Jew. This is annihilation, right? In fact, the Bible uses that word, annihilation. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. So now let's just look with me. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, because here you notice, first of all, there's a transfer of power, right? There used to be power in Haman. But now, Haman is dead, And it says that the house of Haman came to Esther, because Ahazuerus gave the house of Haman to Queen Esther, verse 1. And then Mordecai is brought before the king. And of course, remember, Mordecai is the man who saved the king's life. And the king had discovered that. Back in chapter 6, reading at night when he couldn't sleep, that Mordecai had actually saved his life. And what had been done for Mordecai? Nothing had been done. And you remember how Haman was the one who was to lead him through the streets proclaiming this is the man that the king delights to honor and how mortified Haman was that he had to do such such an act. But but there it is, the the mind of God revealed to us. So the law that Haman uh, put into effect still exists. Just because Haman has died doesn't mean the law doesn't exist. No, the law still exists. But there's been this transfer of authority and transfer of power, and it ultimately comes into the hands of Mordecai because Queen Esther gives it to Mordecai. How do you know that power is in the hands of Mordecai? The answer is simple. It's represented by the king's signet ring, isn't it? That ring that stamps approval to any law or decree in the Persian Empire. The ring that was previously worn by Haman back in chapter 3 and verse 10. And that seal or that signet ring sealed these personal and official documents authorized by the king. So this power and this authority has come now to Mordecai. And you'll notice at the end of verse 2, uh, Esther set Mordecai over the house of, So the property of Haman has come to Mordecai. It is forfeit to uh, Esther and Mordecai. Now, why is Esther able to do that? Well, she's able to do that because she was the person that was wronged by Haman, remember? And thus the king, Xerxes, would have given her this benefit. We know this from ancient history from Herodotus because Herodotus says that a traitor's property always goes to the crown. So if there's any traitor or traitorous activity, the property owned by the traitor reverts to the crown. So Haman's property reverts to King Ahasuerus and King Ahasuerus gives it to Queen Esther and Queen Esther gives it to Mordecai. And so this is how Mordecai comes to have this great power and authority. Mordecai therefore receives the position of Haman and he receives the property of Haman and the world of course when the world looks at such a thing they would just simply say that what goes around comes around how foolish such a statement is right no Haman's demise is because pride goes before destruction right it's what the scriptures teach so this new authority of Esther this new authority of Mordecai's however cannot just simply revoke the decree or the law of Haman that he put in, because Persian laws can never be revoked, can never be repealed. So how does Esther or how does Mordecai get such a decree repealed or revoked? Well, they cannot. Esther cannot, Mordecai cannot. The only thing they can do is to write a new law, write another law. So if you look at verses 3 through 8, Esther says, Uh, in verse 5 when the king gives his approval to her by holding out the golden scepter if it please the king if I found favor in his sight and if the thing seems right to the king and I'm pleasing in his eyes look at all those things about finding favor pleasing in your eyes which he would by the way let an order be written to revoke so it's another order that order does not prevent the execution Uh, of the previous decree by Haman against the Jews. But what the new order does give is allow the Jews on a particular day to defend themselves, to organize themselves, that they might not be destroyed by the previous decree of Haman. So you'll notice, for instance, these things. Number one, Esther pleads for her people in verse 3. She weeps and pleads to avert the plan of Haman, which exists. And Xerxes listens, verse 4. He holds out the golden scepter. And Esther, in verse 5, requests a new order, a new law, a new decree to be issued. She shares her pain, doesn't she? Look at verse 6. For how can I bear to see the calamity coming on my people? So it's out there. Haman's decree. It's going to happen. Okay, so how do, we, how do we reverse that? How do we stop that? And the only way, of course, is by another decree. And Xerxes gives Mordecai permission to write, he says to Queen Esther and to Mordecai, verse 7, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman. have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please, verse 8, with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's rin- ring cannot be revoked. So Xerxes gives Mordecai permission to write as he sees fit and authorize it with his signet ring, which then makes it an irrevocable decree and law. So what does that mean? It means there's another law, right? There's Haman's law and there's Mordecai's law, or Esther's law. And there they sit side by side. And so two months after Haman's edict, back in chapter 3, verse 12, this edict by Mordecai is written. And this is the twelfth year, we believe, of Xerxes' reign, so it's about 474 B.C. Esther became queen in about 479, so this is about five or six years after Esther has become queen. Sometimes you forget about the interplay of years or the interlude of years as you read the events in the book of Esther. Verse 9 is precisely 70 days after Haman's edict, the 23rd uh, day of the month Sivan in the third month. Some see a veiled suggestion here to the 70 year captivity of the Jews which of course ran from 609 to 538 B.C. So under Nebuchadnezzar of course in 609 uh, and, and going forward I should say under the Babylonians with Nebuchadnezzar's destruction in 587 of Jerusalem, Cyrus the The Persian and Darius the Mede overthrow the Babylonian Empire in 538 BC and then from that period on the 70-year captivity is ended, something Daniel talks about in Daniel chapter 9. And so some see a veiled suggestion in the 70-day period with the 70-year period simply by connecting them saying that here is God's deliverance after God's judgment. And that may be or that may not be. You may be reading into Scripture. I'm not too particularly worried uh, about that. But some see a veiled suggestion. The point is, Mordecai exercises his authority immediately. He doesn't dilly-dally, okay, in verse 9. I mean, he, he, they summon the king's scribes and an edict is written according to all that Mordecai commanded the scribes, Right? Sending it out to the satraps and the governors and the officials of every province, 127 of them, throughout the Persian Empire. Written and sealed, by the way, with the king's ring and sent out by courier, verse 10. These uh, famous royal horses that are used for the courier, the pony express of the Persian Empire. There it is. And the content of the edict, verse 11, of course, permits all the Jews by authority of Xerxes to defend themselves. Look what it says, verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force or people of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day. The same day, by the way, that Haman had determined. The same day the jews are allowed to defend themselves against any uprising against them same language that haman uses is the same language that mordecai writes in his decree so verse 12 says that all the jews on that one day verse 12 the 13th day of the 12th month to take vengeance on their enemies so verse 14 out go the couriers and the decree is posted in the city of susa the capital By the way, 15 years later, after this, Ezra, which we read about in the book of Ezra, right, uh, returns to the city of Jerusalem in the year 458, which is on the first day of the first month. You read about that in Ezra chapter 7. Now, if Ezra returns on the first day of the first month, and the twelfth month is just finished, it means that just a few weeks before uh, Ezra sets out, they have celebrated the Feast of Purim, established by Esther. And not only that, but the first day of the first month is 14 days or two weeks before the celebration of Passover. So Ezra kind of is sandwiched between the end of the Feast of Purim and the Feast or the Passover that is to be celebrated when he makes his trip back to Jerusalem, which took him five months. So he leaves in the first month and he arrives in the fifth month. The Jews were thus not destroyed, right, but are delivered by this edict of Mordecai when they themselves exercise their uh, resistance against all attacks, and they survive. Now, you'll notice that Mordecai's edict is received by the Jews. Look at verse 16. It says, with joy, with gladness, with light, with honor. And he rides around the, the city, right? In honor, verse 15, and in every province and every city across the empire, when the edict comes to them, there's gladness and joy among the Jews. In verse 17 says there's a feast and a holiday. By the way, modern Jews celebrate the Feast of Purim, very important to them, the work of Esther, reminding themselves that the Jews were not destroyed, but we'll look a little bit more at that next time in chapter 9. So chapter 8 concludes, notice verse 17, And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. Now, what does that mean? It's simply, by the way, standard Gentile procedure or response to God's presence in a holy war context. So for instance, in Exodus chapter 15, Moses, they've just crossed the Red Sea, he says, Terror and dread fell upon them because of the greatness of your arm. Speaking about the Egyptians and speaking about Pharaoh. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, Lord, pass by. And then he writes in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 25, No one shall be able to stand against you. This is, this is the Lord. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread on as he promised to you. It's the same idea that Rahab had When the two spies came to her, she knew that destruction was determined by God upon Jericho. And she confesses that she wishes to be under the protection of Yahweh, of the Lord himself. Joshua chapter 2. When you read your Old Testament, you discover that God has promised his people and provided his people with his power to overcome their enemies particularly Old Testament history about entering the promised land under Joshua is is suffused with the idea that this is determined by God to give them the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, which actually he does in uh, Joshua's time. I want you to notice here though in Esther in verse 17 that it is not the fear of the Lord that falls upon the enemies but it is the fear of the Jews, or upon the Persians, I should say, but the fear of the Jews. So here's, think about this, here's a Persian, he's out there in the provinces, take whatever 127 province you like, he's out there in the province, he's a Persian, he doesn't know God, he's a Gentile, he's in darkness, he's a pagan, he would just simply see a transfer of power back in the capital, and he would align himself accordingly. Well, if Mordecai's the man in charge... I'm with Mordecai, okay? This is just standard Gentile response. No, this is cultural assimilation, by the way. This is the power of an ancient Persian kingdom or a Babylonian kingdom or a Greek kingdom, whatever it is. This is the power to assimilate a people within themselves and to overcome them. No organized protests. I was just uh, looking uh, earlier today at the works of Plato, who talks about the the rise of the Athenian city-state and the rise of the Spartan city. And they're two different peoples. The Athenians are educated. The Athenians think they're smart. They think they're wise. The Spartans, of course, are military, aggressive. And here they conflict with each other in the Peloponnesian War and then uh, go at each other and seek to overcome them. And the Athenians eventually... uh, run out of power and steam and the Spartans overtake them and set up the 30. And the 30, of course, brings about uh, hardship for the Athenians. And the Athenians want a reversal of what they previously had. And so they previously go back to their ideas and their structure. But the heart of the Athenians, which is the heart of all humanity everywhere, rises up again. And, of course, Socrates himself, the great philosopher, is uh, condemned to death because of his ideas as a result of these things. All of those empires, whether they are Greek or Roman or Persian or Babylonian, they all seek to assimilate culturally all different peoples. So the Jews, like Esther and Mordecai, have been assimilated culturally into the Persian kingdom. And they live their lives as Persians in many respects. As Christians, the Bible teaches us, the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us, that we are to be salt and light in the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now. What does that mean? What does that mean? I mean that can only apply to an effect upon a world upon a culture in which I live I can be salt and light to others that I come into contact with and that I encounter my Influence over the world or my influence in the world is because of salt being salt and light. Never for a moment think that a Christian has no influence in the world. An ordinary Christian, which we are, an ordinary Christian is said to be by Jesus, the king of the universe, to be salt and light, to do something, to have an effect upon the lives of other people. All people you come in contact with, your life means something in relationship to theirs. And you should never see yourself as, well I'm just a I'm just a lowly Christian and what can I do? (laughs) You are salt and light. And you must live up to that reputation. You must live up to that which you are, which Jesus says you are. So I can never get away from the standard of life that Christ has given to us and brought to us because Jesus says that's who you are. Now live out who you are, no matter your position, whether you go to, to Home Depot to work, or whether you rule a country, doesn't matter. As a Christian, you're salt And your light, as Jesus says. And that salt and light influence, by the way, in the world and over the world, may wax and may wane. Comes and goes. Sometimes it's on the ascent, other times it's on the descent. But salt and light is never about power. And it's never about politics, ever. This is the great tragedy, I think, of the Christian church at the present moment. It's too taken up with politics too taken up with power. Who's in power? Well, I'll tell you who's in power. God's in power. God's always been in power. He's never been out of power, right? He's always sovereign. So British prime ministers come and go, don't they? Right, the, the latest one just lasted 45 days. In power. All the power of a nation. Now nothing. God. Now, now you've got to choose a new, a new sovereign or a new prime minister. Guess what? God never goes out of power. Not for one second, Right? He's always in charge. He's always Lord. He's always God. So when we talk about God and the world, let us not think that we ourselves are all about politics or all about power. No, what we are all about is the gospel. That's what we are about. That's what salt and light is about, the gospel, primarily. It's about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ advancing one soul at a time by the sovereign determination of God who chooses a people for himself and delivers them out of all their sins and saves them by his grace. That's never by politics and never by power. Your salvation got nothing to do with that. Your salvation has everything to do with what Christ did at the cross. The gospel of the Lord Jesus. Now listen, every time you stand as salt and light as a believer, you advance the kingdom, the cross work of the Lord Jesus Christ, one step at a time. Every time you uphold the gospel in your witnessing, in your testifying, whatever it is, you show to the world what biblical transformation is really like. Your life changed because of Christ. In other words, the influence of a Christian is not physical per se. That's a very low down on this table. The influence of a Christian on the world in every relationship they have is always spiritual. Is always spiritual. Now, having said all that, let's face the moral dilemma of verse 11. Right? Maybe you missed it. The destruction of children... And women. There have been some disputes over the Hebrew text, in attempts to downplay the barbarity and the savagery of killing women and children, that verse eleven talks about. Right? I mean, let's not get away from it. So there's a dilemma. But I think we're able to deal with the dilemma of women and children uh, being annihilated, being destroyed, and being killed, as verse eleven t- says. We have to say that the scriptures in the old testament that there are occasions that god did demand the destruction of the enemies of his people for example the lex talionis law of exodus chapter 21 the case laws of israel is an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth or to put it another way a life for a life now that law exists in israel right and presuming that you or someone else is the recipient of harmful behavior, God's determination of how that behavior is dealt with justly is an eye for an eye. That's just standard operating procedure in the Old Testament. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Well, so far, so good. The use of holy war by Joshua, of course, is certainly ordained by God. God told Joshua and the people what they were to do. Go in and destroy the Canaanites. God is not, wasn't just interested in the destruction of the Canaanites as a people, but the gods of the Canaanites. Their idolatry. Because unless you destroy their idols, unless you destroy their Asherahs and their Asherim, unless you tear down all that they worship, they will rise up and they will be a snare to you. And that's exactly what happened. They didn't destroy all the idols of, of Canaan or the land of Israel, the land of promise, and those idols eventually took place. Uh, became idolat- idols for themselves as well. What does God do with the Canaanites? Well, he punishes them. They're not innocent. They are, they are wicked in the sight of God. They are anti-God. So the destruction of women and children in Canaan under Joshua was to prevent, in future generations, idolatry and immorality spreading from the Canaanites amongst God's people who are to be holy. Now, whether you want to you like that or not, it doesn't matter. That's what God determined, right? To preserve his people. But here's what we know about retributive violence. Retributive violence ends at the cross. That's what happens with retributive violence from the Old Testament. It ends at the cross. So any idea of the crusades a thousand years ago is totally wrong. Okay, let's make that clear. Holy wars are wrong. All right? Now, I'm not saying that war, just war, is necessarily wrong, but I'm saying that if you advance war in the name of Jesus Christ, that is not what the gospel is about. The gospel is not about that. No. So, retributive violence ends with the death of Jesus on the cross. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ fought the last great holy war. That's what he did, he destroyed those things. And so any ideas of jihad or or any other kind of idea are destroyed by the cross. Jesus ends all of that thinking. Because jihad by the way, modern day jihad is of course resistance to the gospel and is resistance to Jesus of the gospel. So the concept of divine vengeance in Esther, as you read it here women and children, right? Appears to be (coughs) when you read the book of Esther rooted in that ancient enemy of Israel, the Amalekites. We've already considered the Amalekites in the book of Esther. So, the Amalekites are mentioned in Genesis chapter 14. They're mentioned to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 about the sins of the Amorites not yet being complete and therefore my people will go into captivity in Egypt until those sins are complete and then I deal with the Amorites or the Canaanites and so on. Exodus 17, verse 8 and verses 14, 15, and 16, the Lord promises war on the Amalekites from generation to generation because they are against his people and hate his people. And then, of course, you remember the great story when Samuel the prophet told King Saul, you are to go and destroy all the Amalekites, men, children, women, children, cattle, everything, to be destroyed by the command of God. And what did King Saul do? He failed. He didn't do that. He kept alive the king. He kept alive the best. Whatever it was, he did not do what God said. So he disobeyed God and the punishment for King Saul was the kingdom was taken from him and given to a man better who was King David. There are consequences, aren't there, to obedience to God, even in very difficult situations. In Deuteronomy 25, just as Israel is about to enter the promised land, God says, don't forget Amalek. Don't forget that ancient enemy. Because God never forgot it. And the book of Esther certainly makes the Amalekite connection. Do you know how? Because Haman is the Agagite. And King Agag was the king that King Saul failed to destroy and that Samuel hacked to pieces in the Old Testament. But having said all that, to me, it seems that there's a simple point that we must take note of. The the text. What does the text say to us, right? Right? It says, for instance, if you look at, uh, it's verse 11, that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather to defend their lives. Okay, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. Okay, so if they attack you, you defend. So this is not about offense, this is about defense. You defend your life, even though it's couched in the language of the edict. It's about defending their lives, alright? So they were to defend themselves. You notice in verse 13 says that the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance. Taking vengeance doesn't mean they go out and kill, but that they defend their lives and seek to preserve their lives. Now, verse 11 of chapter 8 is simply a repetition or a a reiteration of Haman's edict. Back in chapter 3, verse 13, designed, and it's designed to completely reverse the course, word for word, of what Haman's edict puts in place. So the language of to destroy, to kill, to annihilate, is simply the reversal of the decree that's given to Haman, or given by Haman. By the way, Esther chapter 9 does not reveal any deaths of women or children. Now there may have been, I don't know, but it doesn't record that. It records the deaths of men. There's no question about that. So I'm not convinced that this is, this is the, the idea here, that here God is saying, now you just take out all the women and children. No, this is about defending. If women attack you, or if children attack you, which is very possible, that could have happened, defend your life. That's, I think, what the text is saying. And I think to read more into it, or to try and work it all out, is, is to get ourselves uh, in a tangle, perhaps. So I'm not, I don't think we need to read too much into Esther. Now, the question is, if Haman succeeds, or his edict succeeds, what then? What then? If all the du- Jews are, are destroyed, what then? Okay, it's always bad theological practice to ask the what-if question when you're dealing with the providence of God. Okay, The providence of God takes care of the what-if questions I may have, always. Okay, The providence of God uh, is that which I must accept. And believe is working. God is working all things out according to the counsel of His own will. So we must deal with providence as providence is revealed to us. That what is revealed to us as providential was what God intended and what we see. And I'm frankly, I'm, I'm good with that. I'm satisfied with that. That's all I need to know. That's what God intended. That's what God has revealed. I don't know all that God has planned or all that God has purposed. It's not my business. My business is to take what God has revealed. Is it on my account? Is it for my good? What is He doing? And to see what He has done. But even more than that, the real theater of war is your heart. That's the real theater of war. That's where war against sin is always fought. In the human heart. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, James says, that your passions are at war within you? You want to know where real war is? Right here. Your war as a Christian against sin. Your war perhaps even as a non-Christian. Because you wish to downplay sin and the seriousness of sin against God. And so a non-Christian will put it away shut their eyes, their their minds to it, Uh, turn a deaf ear to what conscience tells them, that that was wrong, that that was wrong, and so on. You see, our problem has always been that we define sin differently from how God defines sin. We define sin the way we want to define it, to please ourselves so that we can carry on with our sin. But what has God called us, if He's called us to be salt and light, what's He called us to be? He's called us to love each other, He's called us to serve one another. He's called us to do for all people what we would have them do for us. Love your neighbors. Love your enemies, as hard as that may be. And it's sometimes, dear brothers and sisters, so hard, it's so easy to forget that. So easy to forget that. In fact, our political culture, our culture stresses, our Christian culture stresses that we must resist. That we must take the fight against the enemy. And really, what do we mean by that? We go to the law courts, we do whatever it takes. Really, is that the advance of the gospel? I seriously doubt that's the advance of the gospel. The advance of the gospel is the sacrifice of your life, laid down for the sake of Jesus. The sufferings you go through are the evidence and the testimony that you love Christ. How you bear up under them. How you live your life out. Not whether you take the fight to a capital city or whatever it is and wage war like the enemy does. Where is Jesus in that? Since Jesus has already fought the war and died for us to overcome these kinds of things. No. Let us not take our cue from the world, right? Right? Now I'm fully prepared to say Esther and Mordecai have assimilated themselves into the Persian culture and there's many things, it's quite clear in in the text that Esther and Mordecai know everything about how uh, Persia runs and works. But God seems to work sovereignly above and beyond all of that to accomplish His purposes for His ends. I do not take my cue from Christian politics. In fact, it distresses me, causes me a lot of grief. No, I take my cue from the cross. And that's all I'm prepared to take my cue from. If I want to live for Christ in this world, let me live the way Jesus lived. Like Him. Is not He the one we should follow? Doesn't Paul say, imitate Christ? Follow Christ? If you are not prepared to lay down your life for me, you're not willing to be my disciple. If you're not prepared to hate mother or father, And children, in other words, you're not to set them against me or in place of me. If if you're willing to have them before me, you're not worthy of me, cannot be my disciple. You see, to be a disciple of Jesus is costly. It'll cost you your life. It'll cost you everything. No, we must simply submit to what the Word says, right? Seek God's will, seek His glory in everything that we do. And let me just say this as I conclude. The reversal of trouble in life. Because this is about reversing trouble, right? The reversal of trouble in your life must be left to God. Whether He reverses it or not is not the issue. You can ask Him. You can go to Him. You can lay it before Him. But whether He reverses it or not, is He knows best. Right? And there's no problem going to Him and asking Him, to help you and guide you. We trust the Lord, don't we, to take care of us in every circumstance, in every situation of life. We even say that our death, our death, our day of death, and our death itself is in the hands of a good and kind and gracious God. That's why the psalmist would always say, Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I f- be afraid? When my heart and my flesh may fail, Oh, trust the Lord, right? So I conclude with just two verses from Psalm 138, verse 7 and 8. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words from Esther chapter 8. And we pray that we might meditate on this great book of Esther, the things that we've learned so far. We pray that we might grow in, in likeness to Christ in the knowledge and the grace of the Lord Jesus. So thank you for these things. And Father, thank you for this Lord's Day, this day that you've given to us. Thank you for your good hand upon us, your blessing upon us. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping you. Thank you that we have gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to worship thank you for that privilege now we pray send us forth into the world where we can live as salt and light where we can testify and give evidence that we love Christ and that Christ loves us that he laid down his life for us that we might be an example to those that we work with that we might be an encouragement and a source of joy to others and that you would build us each one of us up in our faith and in our joy in Christ that we might stimulate one another to love and good works so we surrender ourselves, commit ourselves to you and ask your blessing now. And We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and give you a good week.